but today we're going to finish, I think we're going to finish the, uh, the book of Acts. Uh, last time we were in chapter 2, we're actually very close to the end, so we may not even use all our time. And so, which is good because we're starting late. Um, we were talking about themes of the book of Acts. I sort of took us through the narrative. And if you remember, what, how does the book of Acts end? Where is Paul? Huh? He's in Rome. Sorry, Paul is in Rome in Acts 28. He's very much under arrest and he's very much waiting to see Caesar so that he can make his appeal. And that's where the book ends. And... Uh, I, I started talking about themes that we see in this book, themes of the book. And one of the themes that I wanted to address is the place of the ceremonial law. Because I think the book of Acts is highly relevant for the question of the place of the ceremonial law. And the role the ceremonial law plays in the Christian life. Now, who in the room, I'm going to crowdsource this one. Who can tell me basically what is the ceremonial law? What are we talking about when we talk about the ceremonial law? All right, sacrificial system, um, issues of cleanliness, issues related to the temple, uh, yeah, the issues related to giving sacrifices, those kind of things. Cleansing, cleansing um, food laws, um, anything that marks a, an Israelite apart from somebody else is probably a ceremonial law, uh, anything that visibly does. And so the question that, you, that the book of Acts addresses, or one of the themes of the book of Acts, is this question of the place of the ceremonial law. And Acts 15, we already talked about it, so I'm not going to belabor this. But Acts chapter 15 is where we read that circumcision is not required in order to be saved. That is a big thing. That's a big change. That's a shift for the, for the, for the church, right? God's church has always had circumcision. And now they don't have it anymore and they don't require it anymore. So this decision is relevant for us today because, let me give you a few reasons why it's still relevant. One is it changes how we share the gospel. Because when someone says, what must I do to be saved? If your answer includes anything other than believe on the Lord Jesus, then take a good hard look at the Jerusalem council. <laughs> because the Jerusalem council says it's not Jesus plus a ceremony, right? It's not Jesus plus Baptism even, right? It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It is Jesus. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. Um, uh, there, are some, there are some who like observing Jewish ceremonies, Jewish festivals, having seders, observing Passovers, uh, even though they're Christians. One of the implications of this, I think, is that they are not sinful, but they're also not necessary. Because Jesus has come. Jesus has fulfilled these things. Um, it's important for us to remember Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonies. He has completed their meaning. He has filled them up. The very thing that they pointed to is now given to us. We have them. Um, one very practical reality of the ceremonial law um, uh, after Acts chapter 15. This allows the gospel to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, and apolitical, right? Now we have a gospel that doesn't require a certain political environment in which to exist. It doesn't require a specific ethnicity. It doesn't require a specific culture. And so you have this gospel that the same message can go to Ethiopia. The same message can go to India. The same message can go to Gaul. 
The same message can go to Germany. The same message can go to Turkey and all these churches in Asia Minor. The same message gets preached in all of these places and it transcends all of those locations. And I'm going to say that is probably the most lasting effect of what they decide in Acts chapter 15. Because the gospel can go everywhere now. And it doesn't require people to change their society and change which culture they belong to. You can be a German and a Christian. You can be a Frenchman and a Christian. You can be an Italian and be a Christian or Turkish and be a Christian. You can be all of these different places and you don't have to go, well, now I have to change and become a Jewish person or an Israelite um, or an American for that matter. (laughs) Um, the, The gospel transcends those things. And that's one of the great beauties here. Um, another theme of the book. In fact, this is a huge theme of the book. This is a theme that if you miss this, you haven't read the book of Acts. And the big theme of the, uh, one of the biggest themes in the book of Acts is preaching. This is a book full of sermons. There are a lot of sermons in this book. Uh, you have Peter's sermon. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, what does he do? He opens the Old Testament and he explains the Old Testament to people. You have Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. What does he do in Acts chapter 7? He opens the Old Testament and he explains it to everybody in the crowd. Uh, Paul does, has, a, has a number of sermons where he does the same thing. Almost always they're going to the Old Testament and they're using the text to make the argument that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And they're hinging it on the text that they already know and believe. Uh, one of the things you see is that with great repetition, the apostles are convinced that what their audiences need is not a pep talk. They don't need to be cheered up first and foremost. Most of all, they need to have the Bible opened and they need to have the Bible explained to them. And that is something that just happens over and over again in the book of Acts. In fact, if you think about it, you have all these events in the book of Acts. You have people getting healed. You have people getting raised from the dead. But then what really happens surrounding those events, you have the preaching of the word where they're explaining to people what they just saw. Right? Peter sees all, uh, all these people in the book of Acts and everyone says, oh, look, they're all drunk. Peter steps up and what does he do? He interprets for them what they're seeing and what they're experiencing so that the event doesn't just go uninterpreted. So that they don't just go, well, I guess everybody was talking funny. Everybody was just talking funny in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, instead, uh, Peter says, let me explain this to you. He's very much following the pattern of Nehemiah 8. Because if you remember in Nehemiah 8... They stood, they read the, the scriptures publicly, and then they made sure that everybody had a sense of the meaning of the text. So this is an old practice. The New Testament church didn't invent the idea of preaching. Uh, it existed before. Um, another theme of the book of Acts, something that's peppered throughout. It's almost this, uh, what's the word I want to use? It's almost like the capstone of the evangelism that takes place in, in Acts is this idea of baptism. Um, The thing that you see repeatedly in the book of Acts is that people believe and immediately they and their whole household are baptized. So one of the examples, one of the, one of the, I guess, plainest, most basic examples is in Acts chapter 16. Let me read this. You have the Philippian jailer. He is converted and... 
Actually, first, I'll just read basically from Lydia, actually. In the same chapter, it's Acts chapter 16. It says, uh, in verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Uh, I don't, uh, hopefully, you see this dovetails nicely with what we talked about in the sermon this morning. The idea that the opening of the heart is something that God does, something that belongs to God. And with this woman, Lydia, it doesn't say she opened her heart to God. I think he could have said that and it wouldn't have been wrong because obviously God does in our own hearts what we do. (laughs) God does the very thing that we do. Uh, Lydia on one level opens her heart to God, but Luke wants to go a degree deeper to explain why she opened her heart. She opened her heart because it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It says after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us. And so she's baptized and her whole household is baptized as well. Presumably she's the head of her household. Uh, She likely doesn't have a husband. It seems from the narrative, it seems that what may have happened is she's inherited her husband's business or her husband's work. Or she's just an industrious person who built this business on her own. It doesn't explain to us. Um, But it does tell us that she believes and her household is baptized. You see the same thing in later on in this chapter in uh, around verse 25. You have Paul and Silas. They're in the prison. They're singing hymns. And then what happens? The earthquake happens. The Philippian jailer panics. He's ready to kill himself. And then Paul says, don't do it. Don't hurt yourself. You're not going to get in trouble. We're still here. We stayed put. And then he tell, they tell the man what the gospel is. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So he gets evangelized. His family gets evangelized. His family hears the imperative to believe the gospel. And it says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So you've got a household baptism here. And at this point, you might be like, well, the whole household had the gospel preached to them. Maybe the whole household actually believed. Well, you'd have to read that between the lines because it says in verse 34, it says he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the only person that we know of in the narrative who believed in God, who believed this message is the jailer. Maybe his family did believe, but the text doesn't give us that. It says he believed. They rejoiced that he believed. So again, if you want to say, well, the whole household believed, that's why they all got baptized. That is perfectly possible, and I don't have a problem with it, but you have to read that into the text. What we do know is that he believed, and everyone in his household was baptized. Now, sometimes it says that the whole household believed and was baptized. You actually have Crispus, or is is it Crispus? Yeah, Crispus in Acts 18.8. In Acts 18.8, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So it looks like there, they actually tell us when the whole household believed. In the case of the Philippian jailer, it only tells us that he believed. So Luke is capable of telling us when a whole household believes and gets baptized. But it appears he also tells us when a whole household is baptized, but only the head of the household believes. Um, The case I'm trying to make here is that, yes, it's a case for infant baptism. It's really a case for household baptism. That's the practice in the New Testament. I just need to point it out because 
You're not going to find it in the Gospels because Jesus tells the disciples to baptize after he rises, right? So uh, baptism gets instituted in Matthew 28. You're not going to find it in the Gospels necessarily. Yeah, Micah. Would that affect um, if your family adopted a 10-year-old? I repeat the question. So, yeah, Micah was asking, let's say you have a 10-year-old who is adopted into your family. Uh, they're of age where presumably they could make their own decision to follow Christ, and they haven't been baptized yet. Would they receive what you would call a household baptism? Uh, my answer is yes. But I also have found in the past at least every instance that we've had that happen, because I was at my last church it was like that, where the family came in, the children had not been baptized but also they were old enough to make a decision for Christ. And they actually were at the place where they did. And so in their case, the children received believer's baptism because they had already made a decision to follow Jesus. And so there was no need to do an infant baptism. Now, they also had, I think there was another family that came in and I think they had a five or six year old. And so we had what was an infant, what we would have called an infant baptism or at least a five-year-old baptism. And that was not on profession of faith. That was because she's a covenant child. So you kind of run into a few. Baptism's tricky. It can't get tricky. We had, um, when we came to the understanding of infant baptism, Jordan was, I think, about nine. And Brenna was around five or six. Mm -hmm. And so when we went went to our new church and adopted that belief. Jordan, they were baptized on the same day, but Jordan was baptized as a believer because he had shown a credible profession of faith. Well, Brenna was um, a household baptism because she wasn't that age yet. It was kind of an interesting yeah. dynamic that two kids from the same family were baptized on the same day, but under two different, different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, you, you see that a lot. Yeah, Asha. I uh, wonder, I mean, there's obviously a cultural gap between us and the ex-apostles. And the understanding of authority, I think, especially in the United States, is just so different from their understanding of authority for, for us to cringe uh, at some of those concepts uh, to make an adult that's not professing do something because mm -hmm. the head of a house called decided so. Yeah. Uh, whereas in that culture... It was just how they understood life to be, and I think that's... You mean like an older child in the household, maybe? Or, I mean... Or the servants. Your servants, exactly. yeah. I mean, when they say high school, I, I, I understand that it also includes all of the slaves and yeah. position and uh, servants and such. And, uh, I, I just think it's just hard for us to really grasp those concepts because of the culture. Yeah, it makes it harder. Yeah. Um, now, here's what I think I'll, I'll do... Uh, because I'm talking about household baptisms already and because we had a baptism today, I'm going to do, do something because I don't know where else I would fit it in. I'm just going to give you, uh, you know, maybe you still need to be persuaded or maybe you're persuaded, but you have trouble explaining why we do uh, baptism for children. I'm just going to pass this around. It's not a, it's not a book recommendation because I'm only allowed to do one of those, thus saith. Uh, I'm only allowed to do one, but I'm going to pass this around anyway. This is a book by a friend of mine. His name is Guy Richard. He was at RTS Jackson. I actually went to Guy Richard, and I actually told him 
guy, I, was, I had just finished seminary and I was looking for a church. And I said, guy, I know you're looking for an associate at your church. I would really like you to consider me. And guy actually told me, I don't think that I want you to be my associate pastor. And he said, the reason is because everything I know about you, I think you should be a senior pastor. And so he wouldn't take me. And so you have this guy to thank for me being here. So, <laughs> so uh, here you go. It's a good book. You can just look through the headings of the chapters. And if it's interesting to any of you, you can certainly borrow it. Um, these books are for you guys to use too. So um, people did not just give the sign of the, um, I'm sorry, just a second. Let me look at what I wrote here. I think I wrote a sentence that doesn't make sense, which happens all the time. That's, that's what I call sermon here. Um, so here's what happens in the New Testament. You have, you, they cease doing one particular thing when they evangelize. What do they cease doing? They're not doing circumcision. They don't do any more circumcision. There are no moils in the church, right? There's nobody going around doing that. Instead, here's what happens though. They stop giving people that sign of the covenant, but then they start giving a new sign to new converts and to their kids. So instead of the bloody ritual, they're giving the bloodless ritual to people. So in Colossians 2.11, here's what's going on. Paul is writing to this group of Gentiles who've never been circumcised. They've never been circumcised, right? And what does he say to these uncircumcised people? He says, in him, you were circumcised. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So one of the, this is one of the texts that I go to, to to show that he treats somebody who's been baptized as though they have been circumcised. Right? He tells them, you've been circumcised, and they're definitely not circumcised people. Now, he's talking about something that Christ has done in their hearts, but he specifically makes baptism part of this. So he's basically saying this is the place where you see this close connection between baptism and circumcision drawn. Um, this, this, this is a passage that can help us, at least I think, understand why we baptize the infants of believers. Because God's people never stop giving the sign of the covenant to their children. And here in Colossians, Paul draws this tight connection between what we used to do with blood and what we now do with water. And so if you've been circumcised with water, Paul says you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Yeah, Benjamin. If, as you said, it's a work that Jesus Christ has done, can one assume, therefore, that that's he's doing a work of redemption for that individual? That if a person's been baptized, then he is doing a work of redemption? If, if, as you said, it's the Lord who's doing the work, mm-hmm. can we assume, therefore, that, it's, it, that it, that person is going to be redeemed? Uh, I don't think so, but that, that's, different from saying, that's different from saying they won't or that God wouldn't. <laughs> I know that might sound like hedging a little bit, but if you think of it again in terms of circumcision, a Jewish person gets circumcised. We wouldn't say, well, they're saved. Right. Right? So what do, what do would we say? We would say they've gotten something that an uncircumcised person doesn't have. right? They've been marked with the covenant. And every time, not to be gross, but there's, there's not children in here. Every time a man looks down and sees himself circumcised and sees something missing, 
there is meant to be something communicated by that. So he, when he sees that, he's seeing, and not only that, but his wife, presumably he's going to be married, right? Uh, they are seeing something. There is going to be someone that comes from us, genetically comes from us. And every time we procreate, we're remembering that God is going to bring a seed from us. So everybody's marked with this constant reminder that there is going to be one come who's going to shed his blood for us. So they have an advantage already that, that a Gentile doesn't have. They've already got, in a sense, the gospel being preached to them just physically, just by virtue of the mark that they've received. So they've got that. And then they've got all the other things that come with Judaism. They've got the preaching of the word. They've got the same scripture that the apostles are preaching in the book of Acts. They've got all these advantages. So if you were to ask me, is a Philistine more likely to be saved than a Jewish person who's been circumcised? I'm going to be like, no. Those people had the oracles of salvation. They had all these advantages and all this blessing that comes from receiving the sign of the covenant. So in that sense, yes, you could say there's a stronger opportunity for people to believe in that context. And I would say the same thing for, I would say the same thing for baptism. Yeah, Micah. It's not a certainty, but you would, you would, uh, the tendency would be to presume that that would be the, the natural outcome of being raised in a Christian home that they would receive the gospel. Not yeah, the word presume is hard, but it's just sort of, yeah, Micah, you've got to think something. I mean, the, uh, one of the great, one of, I, seriously, uh, Charlie and I interviewed a family. You guys might guess who I'm going to be talking about in a second. We interviewed a family last week, and they basically told us we were all baptized as, as children, and we believed from a young age, and to the best of my knowledge, I knew Jesus as long as I've been alive. And that is a great blessing to not necessarily have some dramatic tale of 
deep sin that that you lived in and were redeemed out of. It's actually wonderful to be able to say, I was raised in the church. I was baptized as a child. I was taught to believe the gospel. I was taught to memorize scripture. And I grew up and now I'm doing the same thing for my children. Like that is awesome. That's beautiful. And so there's not a specific moment that you would point to necessarily in the person where you'd say, oh, um, this is where it became real because for many Christians, it's just real all their lives because they were baptized and raised in it and taught to believe. Taking it all just for granted is also a great sin. Yeah. Taking it for granted is a great sin also. Yanka mentions. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, um, so yeah, you asked the question, can you presume that the person is saved or, or something like that? And, and or that God will uh, change their heart? And I think the answer is no, but also God is gracious. And it probably the real answer is just that it's complicated. <laughs> well, hopefully the norm, right? Yeah. It would hopefully be the normal well, what, is, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? He says, how will they believe unless they are told? A child in the church raised up, uh, taught the faith, um, whether they got infant baptized or whether they got dedicated a dry infant baptism, right? Whether, whatever they get when they're a little child, they're receiving all of these things that belong to children of the covenant. And that child is hearing the gospel. And God can always take someone who's never heard the gospel and walks in off the street and just hears it one day. And yet the normal way that we see that, that Paul mentions in Romans 10, there has to be someone telling you the gospel. And when someone, if you're in the church, you're hearing the gospel and you're hearing it an awful lot. So there's a little bit, I don't know, is there a, that's still a non-answer, but that's the closest I can come to a real answer. <laughs> um, so um, faith in Jesus is, is seen as, for Paul, it's seen as the signpost of baptism and circumcision where it's always pointing to Jesus. So if you've been baptized, you've been marked in a way that's basically saying to you all your life, Go to Jesus. Point to Jesus. This is what your parents wished for you. This is what your church wishes for you. This is what your church prayed for you when you were a little one. All these people cared about you, and they still care about you. And as a church, we make vows that we're going to help those parents do precisely that. And so, anyway, it's just beautiful and remarkable. And I'm grateful that God does this. This is a new thing for me, by the way. I was raised in churches that didn't believe in infant baptism, so I had to be persuaded into it. Um, and I always believe a few things. I always believe that churches that did infant baptism did it just because it was tradition. And I always believed that they believed that the child was being saved by being baptized. And I always thought these people don't understand what salvation is. You know, you have to have faith in Jesus in order to be saved. They keep thinking these children are saved. And if you think that salvation of the person is preconditioned for baptism, well, you sometimes end up with what happened to me. When I was a kid, I got baptized three times because I kept waiting for it to be real. Uh, and eventually you realize, you know, sometimes you don't know if it's real and you get baptized. Um, so, yeah, my, um, another, another important subject in the book of Acts, another theme of the book of Acts. And boy, wouldn't it be neglectful if we didn't mention this as well, is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit does miracles through the apostles. He testifies to their divine commission. Um, the miracles that you see from the apostles are not things we should regularly expect today. Now, I'm qualifying. I'm using words like regularly, right? 
The book of Acts was a period of intense spiritual activity, monumental changes in the history of salvation. And sometimes we think of miracles as these things that, are, that happen in order to amaze us. We think, oh, I'm supposed to see a miracle so I can be amazed. But in the book of Acts, miracles don't happen for their own sake. Miracles don't simply happen because, boy, wouldn't it be neat if the apostles did a miracle right now? Um, their purpose is to point to the apostles and say to the onlookers, listen to these men. I mean, that's literally what happens sometimes is uh, they say, listen to us. You can know that we were divinely commissioned because would God do a miracle through us if he didn't send us? And then they would do a miracle. And so what happens is the miracle acts as part of an argument. And the argument is God would not do this miracle through them if they were preaching falsely or if they didn't come from God. So the apostles, what you see is they are uniquely important. They are special in church history. Their message is the message of salvation that is untainted and unadulterated. They, they, they give exactly the words that God wants them to say. And it does help explain why miracles like the apostles did are not the norm today. Uh, men born blind receiving sight in the book of Acts. Dead people raised back to life. Paralyzed people able to stand and walk again. Uh, I am a, what we call a cessationist, which means I believe that the sign miracles, the miracles the apostles did cease with the closing of the canon. But I think I'm also probably what you would call a soft cessationist where I don't so bind God that I leave out the possibility of him doing a miracle somewhere in the world out there. So I don't know if that's soft cessationism or if that's just proper cessationism, but I certainly think that we do not expect those things as the norm, as the regular events that, is, that should be a normal part of the Christian life. I was raised in a church that certainly believed that. I certainly, that's my background, is very charismatic. Uh, so now I've kind of settled down at least a little bit, I think. <laughs> um, and not to put a, too fine of a point on it, but God does, any miracle that God would do would not be attached to a specific person. So when you see people out there who are claiming, oh, I'm a healer, uh, I do miracles. Come to me. I'm going to do a miracle. That person is a charlatan because they are all about themselves and bringing people to themselves. And God can do miracles, but he does not attach those miracles to somebody, especially not somebody who's telling you to send them $50 so they can send you a hanky. Um, and that that's kind of stuff makes me really angry. I get kind of self-righteous about it. I remember um, in Mississippi going to uh, the house of a church member who she was physically unable to walk. And so she was homebound basically her whole life. And I would go and see her at her house. And what would she do? She wanted to hear from the Lord. So what did she do? She turned the TV on to anything that she could see. And it would be like TBN, you know. And when I walked into the house, you know, I remember this one time I went to her house and the TV was on. And he said, put your hand on the screen. Put your hand on the screen. And I'll send, you, I'll send you this. You'll get this special handkerchief if you just send me a note. And of course, you get on their mailing list. And he said, if you put this in your hand, you're going to experience healing. You're going to experience God's presence. And it made me angry. Yeah. Like, Not like, oh, that's too bad that that happens. But I'm looking at this woman and I'm thinking she needs to be ministered to by God's word. And this guy is lying to her and making her think that the Christian life consists in these miraculous, amazing things that she has yet to see in her life. But she still continues to expect 
Um, <clears throat> so that's why I think it's really important for us to give a healthy understanding to Christians about the place of miracles and what they should actually expect to see in their, in their lives. Um, I have a question. Yeah, Benjamin. A lot of theologians title Acts of the Apostles, but some are saying it really should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm fine with either one because they're both true, right? <laughs> yeah, or the Holy Spirit through the apostles. But I couldn't tell you exactly how, that, how it gets its name. So maybe somebody that has their church history down better than me. Um, I love the book of Acts. I, I, when I preached through the book of Acts, I kind of didn't want the sermon series to end I wanted to break the sermons up into tinier chunks just because Acts is so wonderful and it's just full of just wonderful little moments. But um, you know what this book of Acts is, though? It's, a, it's showing that the promise that Jesus makes at the beginning of that book comes true. Because what does he say at the very beginning of the book? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even, what, to the remotest parts of the earth. And then how does the book end? The book ends with Paul in chains where? For a Jewish person, at the very end of the earth, right? Here he is, he's in Rome. That's as far from home as you want to get as a Jewish person. You don't even want to go to Rome. Rome is the nightmare land. It's the place you don't really want to be. And Paul is there. So it's a book that begins exactly where Jesus says it's going to begin. And it's a book that ends exactly where Jesus says it's going to end. So what a blessing. I love the book of Acts. What we'll do next week is we will look at the life of Paul. Uh, and I, I love talking about the life of Paul. So uh, I tried to steer away from that as much as possible so that we wouldn't overlap with any of the stuff that we do in Acts. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the, through the apostles, Lord, you acted. Your Holy Spirit acted in this world, uh, bringing accomplishment to your word, that your word went out uh, from this one little place, this little backwater corner of Palestine, and it went out into the world and lives were changed and households were baptized and children were marked with the covenant and people believed and your word spread and multiplied throughout the world. We praise you, God, that you are a great savior who changed, changes the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.